We're in a series called I Believe in Science. Last week I opened with a question. Can you believe in God and science at the same time? And atheists like Richard Dawkins and scientific materialists like Neil deGrasse Tyson say no. To them, science put God out of a job. They say more science means less God. If that were true, it would stand to reason that most scientists today would be atheists, but that's not the case. In a survey done by Rice University and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, they found that the majority of scientists in the United States, in fact, identify as Christians. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. We don't check our brains at the door. At least I hope you don't. Can I get an amen? In fact, the scientific revolution was started by believers. That's the fact you don't hear in schools and universities these days. When you think about the giants of the scientific revolution, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Kepler, Boyle, Kelvin, Faraday, they were all brilliant men of science and also men with deep faith in God. To the people who founded modern science, their faith in God was not a challenge to their science. In fact, it was what guided them in their scientific discoveries. Isaac Newton, who discovered gravity and the three universal laws of motion, said this, All my discoveries have been made in answer to prayer. Louis Pasteur, the founder of microbiology and immunology, the inventor of pasteurization, the guy who made the rabies and the anthrax vaccines, was a man who prayed in the lab while he worked. Sir Francis Bacon, the guy who invented the scientific method of cooking bacon, said this, a little science estranges a man from God, but a lot of science brings him back. A little science estranges a man from God. And sadly, this is exactly what's happening with young people today, and it's been happening for a long time. They go to school, and they're given a little science. Just enough to alienate them from God, and they never dig deep enough into science to see how God's hand is in working through all of his creation. A little science is dangerous, but a lot of science is divine. Albert Einstein said this, Religion without science is blind, but science without religion is lame. In other words, ain't going nowhere. So it's not one or the other. You need both. And as Christians, we don't reject science because science is the study of how God operates. Last week we looked at astrophysics and how current science and the Bible agree. And I, I even talked about a leading astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross, who studied at Caltech with Stephen Hawking, who found Jesus just by studying astronomy and quantum physics and how they lined up with the writings of all the major world religions. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and check out last week's message. But today, welcome to biology class. Biology 101. <laughs> We're going to start with a guy, you may have heard of him, a guy named Charles Darwin. Anybody ever heard that name? Darwin, I've got hissing over there. <laughs> Darwin was made famous for his book on the origin of species. And that's the title of my message this morning. Darwin developed a theory called the theory of evolution, proposing that all life on Earth developed from a common ancestor, okay? From the goo to you by way of the zoo. 
By the way, one day, one day, a group of scientists called a meeting with God, and they stood before the great creator, and they said, we've become so advanced in our scientific achievements that we can clone humans and even create babies in a test tube. We can pretty much take care of ourselves from here on, so we called to let you know we don't need you anymore. God looked at them and said, okay, but before I go, let me challenge you to a competition. Let each of us make a human being from the dirt like I did in the beginning. The scientists all agreed to the challenge, so the lead scientist reached down and picked up a handful of dirt, and God said, no, no, make your own dirt. (laughs) Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. So this morning, I want to examine Darwinism from, from three basic elements, and then we'll conclude with what the Bible says. Three elements of Darwinism. I'm going to look at Darwin's science, Darwin's observations, and Darwin's evidence. Number one, Darwin's science. Let's start with the science as Charles Darwin understood it. Was Darwin right on some things? Yes, he was. Was he wrong on some stuff? Oh, yeah. And here's the thing about human understanding. We don't always get it right. Why do you think we recognize the founders of the scientific revolution? Because centuries later, their stuff remains true. That's a big deal because not everybody gets it right. Okay, think about this. Fifty years ago, doctors prescribed cigarettes to treat asthma. True story. Okay? (laughs) Not everybody gets it right all the time. But if you go back to Darwin's day... There were two scientific ideas, ideas, mind you, that Darwin relied upon when he developed his theory. The idea number one is he believed life could form spontaneously. This theory was called spontaneous generation. I just want to make sure everybody's awake. I'm going to do a wake check. Just say, say with me, spontaneous generation. Come on, say that again. Spontaneous generation. There you go. It was a belief that life could generate from nothing. In fact, people at the time believed that maggots spontaneously appeared in rotting meat. That was the science of Darwin's day. As you can imagine, this would make it easy to assume that life could have formed on its own apart from the Creator. But then, somebody messed everything up. A guy named Louis Pasteur stepped in. Y'all remember him? Father of Microbiology. He's the guy who said, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. Science brings men nearer to God. Pasteur used a scientific method to prove that Darwin's idea of spontaneous generation was wrong. In fact, Pasteur's discoveries were one of the reasons people didn't widely accept evolution during Darwin's lifetime. So idea number one was wrong. No spontaneous generation. Idea number two, Darwin believed that living cells were very, very simple. Charles Darwin and others of his time assumed that living cells were rudimentary like a big blob of jello, if they had jello back then. Okay, they believed that cells were mainly just a bunch of plasma, just this squishy, gooey nothingness. In other words, there was nothing sophisticated or complex about the cell. Well, science today tells us that the opposite, in fact, is true. It is mind-blowing how complex a living cell is. Do you see how Darwin's origin of species was built on these two principles? 
right? If evolution is the creator of life, there had to be spontaneous generation at some point. Let me think about that a little bit. Spontaneous generation was just proved in the 1800s. If evolution created life, this spontaneous generation had to occur. Life had to come from nothing. There's no way around it with the theory of evolution. So who says Darwinism is dead? Charles Darwin does. In his own words, he said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight changes, my theory would absolutely break down. There are numerous examples in nature of irreducible complexity, but all we have to do is go back to the very beginning, to the very first living cell. Statistically, it's not even a remote possibility that something so complex could have formed on its own from non-living things. Statistically, not possible, and thanks, Louis, scientifically not possible. How do we know that for sure? Because over the past 20 years, scientists have come to understand something called molecular biology. In order to get that very first cell, we now know that you have to already have DNA and RNA to build proteins or you can't even get that first living cell. And in a human cell, the genetic code for that very first cell to be formed is 3 billion letters long. Did you hear that? Not 3. 3 billion Letters long. No way in science or statistics that that could have happened by accident. And I think about a guy named Anthony Flew, Sir Anthony Flew. He was the leading atheist of the last half of the last century. And when he was debating C.S. Lewis on the origin of life, he said, and this is, this is when we had a very rudimentary understanding of DNA, he said, if you give a million monkeys a million typewriters, they'll eventually produce the entire works of Shakespeare. It became known as the Infinite Monkey Theorem. And in 2002, there was a research grant given to a group of grad students who put a computer terminal in a cage with six monkeys, and after a month, aside from using the computer as a toilet, they managed to type five pages, and not one single word of the English language was in those five pages. And remember that the letter A and the letter I are considered words. It was absolutely disproven, okay? The infinite monkey theorem doesn't work, and the episode of The Simpsons even had a little scene making fun of this idea. And I've got it for you this morning, Disclosure. This is not my cartoon, but it's just a popular reference that kind of breaks apart this atheistic idea that it could have happened by chance. This was a thousand monkeys working with a thousand titans. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You stupid monkeys. <laughs> so there it is. It was the worst of times, stupid monkey. No matter if you have 10 million monkeys and 10 billion typewriters, there's no way that random chemical reactions 
can produce complex DNA. By the way, when molecular biology began to really advance and true complexity of DNA was revealed, Anthony Flew himself, the guy who came up with that theory, the world's leading atheist, came out and said, no, there is a God. That the evidence is undeniable. There's no way that this could have happened on its own. There has to be a God. Listen, I want you to know this morning, life cannot happen by chance. Dr. Michael Behe, a professor of molecular biology, said this about the cell. He said, the result of his cumulative efforts to investigate the cell, to investigate life at the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. The result is so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in human history. The discovery rivals those of Newton and Einstein. That's how amazingly complex DNA is. And I'll talk about more on DNA uh, when I do part three here in a couple weeks. But three elements of Darwinism. Number one, Darwin's science. Number two, Darwin's observation. Charles Darwin was brilliant in his observation of nature. Okay, I'm going to give old Charlie D. some credit on this one because he really was an intelligent man. He noticed how organisms adapt to the environments around them. You've probably heard of Darwin's finches, right? We've got, we've got a little illustration there. That's actually his drawings of what he called finches. They're actually mockingbirds, but we'll, we'll let that one slide, right? But he observed how the, the birds who lived in areas of Low rainfall had thicker beaks, and those who lived in areas of high rainfall had thinner beaks. Now, they had different size and shape beaks based on the food that was available to them. And these natural adaptations are what we call microevolution. Come on, just humor me. Say that. Microevolution. Okay, microevolution has been observed and documented. Okay, natural selection is a fact of nature, and it's important to understand that we observe, we see, it's been proven that this does happen in nature, but there's where the science ends and the theory begins. Because when you say evolution, you're talking about one of two things. Microevolution is the observation of small changes, but macroevolution is the creation of an entirely new species. Again, this is where science stops and theory starts. Darwin theorized that microevolution leads to macroevolution. Simply put, these small changes in organisms, given enough time, will lead to the creation of completely new organisms. And if you ask me, Darwinism really is a religion that worships time. They throw in time to account for the things that science can neither observe nor explain. So if it doesn't make sense scientifically, we'll just throw a few billion years and say, you can't figure it out. We've done the math. It's got to happen over this amount of time. Here's something I learned in school. If you didn't study for the test, extra time ain't going to give you the answers. Microevolution has been observed and documented, but macroevolution has never been proven. When people say evolution has been proven by science, they're talking about microevolution and not macroevolution, but people are sneaky, aren't they? <laughs> macroevolution is the idea that we all have a common ancestor. I'm sure you've heard this before. Humans and apes share 98% of their DNA. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, 
truth is, they're cheating when they say that. What they did is they took a specific section of DNA that happens to have 98% similarities, but overall, the DNA between humans and apes is only 84% similar. And our DNA is 90% similar with mice. And the truth is, there are many DNA similarities across living creatures, but what if instead of a common ancestor, it points to a common designer? Wouldn't it make sense that if there was a common designer of all life, and many of these organisms had similar function, that you would see some of the same code in their creation? Something to think about. Here's the problem with microevolution. In terms of science, it doesn't do what Darwin says it does. With Darwin's finches, he noticed that natural selection produced long-beaked finches in times of drought and short-beaked finches during rainy season. But here's the truth that we know now is that both types of beaks always existed in the population. This was not new genetic code. Natural selection was favoring genes that already existed in their DNA. When mutations occur, information is not added. Information is lost. And that's what the Bible says, and that's what even astrophysics and quantum physics says, is that all of the universe is in a state of continual decay. That's the consequence of sin and death. And we see this in our DNA. Mutations happen, and it doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. I'll give you an example of this. Think about the coronavirus. The Delta variant was much stronger, but over time it mutated and became the much weaker Omicron variant. One of the reasons why more and more people in the scientific community are rejecting neo-Darwinism is because there have been extensive experiments spanning decades, and they found no evidence for macroevolution. One search experience that it was at the experiment is at the University of Pittsburgh. Anybody ever heard of the bacteria E. coli? Oh, we were kids, so we want to speak in tongues. We say E. coli, E. coli. Until we got smacked a little bit. <laughs> at the University of Pittsburgh, they've experimented using 40,000 generations of E. coli trying to prove evolution. And after 30 years and 40,000 generations of E. coli, guess what they have today? The same E. coli they started with. Experiments are proving that microevolution does not lead to macroevolution. So Darwin's science, Darwin's observations, less than Darwin's evidence. This day and age, the debate over evolution is no longer an issue of religion versus science. It's now an issue of science versus science. More and more biologists and researchers are raising doubts about Darwin's theory on the origin of species. If the theory of evolution is true, it stands to reason we would see transitional organisms everywhere, not just in the fossil record, but also in nature. We would see creatures whose scales are turning into feathers, whose fins are turning into fingers, whose external skeletons are becoming internal, or whose feet are turning into wings. But these missing links simply don't exist. Not in nature, not in the fossil record. 
Dr. Henry Morris discusses the lack of evidence in the fossil record. He said they used to claim that the real evidence for evolution was in the fossils of the past, but the fact is the billions of known fossils do not include a single unequivocal transitional form with transitional structures in the process of evolving. There should be thousands, if not millions, of missing links in the fossil record that bridge the gaps between the species going all the way back to the beginning, but they simply are not there. National Geographic, back in 2004, did a whole article, and the, the, the topic of the magazine was, Was Darwin Wrong? And being National Geographic, what do you think their answer was? <laughs> On the very first page, they said, No! And let's try to explain why. But in this article on Charles Darwin, they said, in terms of proving evolution, the fossil record is like watching a movie where 999 out of every thousand frames is missing. You expect to see a two-hour movie, but it lasts 12 seconds. In other words, they're admitting that there is no proof in the fossil record that Darwin was right on the origin of, of species. When Charles Darwin developed this theory in the 1800s, he admitted that there was no record at the time, but he claimed that eventually evidence would be discovered. It's been 140 years since poor Charlie died, and there's still no proof. Again, who says Darwinism is dead? Charles Darwin does. He said the evidence must come. Sorry, Charlie, but modern paleontology has plenty of time and technology to prove evolution is true, but it has failed to do so. Here's what, I've got a little more science for you, and then I'll, I'll, we'll pray and it will be done. But here's what paleontologists and geologists have found in the fossil record. There was nothing, then suddenly there was life everywhere. It's what they call the Cambrian Explosion. In the layers of rock called the geological column, okay, at the very bottom of the layer, of all these layers, is the Cambrian layer. It's the very first layer of rock where they find fossils. And in the Cambrian layer, rock layer, they have discovered fossils of 80% of all the organisms that have ever existed. And this is significant because there were more species found in the Cambrian layer than there are alive today. They go back down there, they find more creatures then than creatures we got now. Think about that. Of all the plants, animals, and insects around the world today, there were more then, and they appeared suddenly, and they appeared fully formed. They didn't appear evolving into what they were. They appeared fully formed. In fact, the only thing they found in the layers under the Cambrian layer is evidence of bacteria and worms. So let's think about this for a minute. I see a bunch of plants, fish, and animals appear suddenly and fully formed. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1.11, God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. Not evolving into different types of plants and trees. And by the way, you don't see any articles on plants evolving. According to the theory of evolution, plants would have to evolve too in the same way, but there's no evidence at all of plant evolution. Genesis 1.20, God said, Let the water swarm with fish and other life, and let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. 
Genesis 1.24, then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, the livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. So we see the Word of God give us a description of this explosion of all creatures, of all plant life, of the sea and on land, everything appearing at once and fully formed. And according to science, you have a bunch of nothing, and then suddenly all these advanced creatures appear. You see, the more science discovers, the more it affirms what the Bible's been teaching for thousands of years. A little science estranges a man from God, but a lot of science brings him back. I brought with me a little friend here, a little fossil buddy that hangs out at my desk over next door. This is called a trilobite. Have you ever heard of this? If you go to the Cambrian layer at the very, very bottom, not only here, but in every part of the world, they find these little guys. And these little fellows, these little creatures, perplex scientists. They can't figure them out because they appear suddenly out of nowhere at the very bottom of the fossil record. And they had hard shells. They had advanced organs. They had complex eyes with hundreds of sophisticated lenses connected to the optic nerve going to their brain. Not only did they live on the bottom of the oceans, but they walked up on the land too. Y'all remember evolution said that would take millions and billions of years for the algae to grow feet and crawl up out of the land and go to college. This little guy is the first thing to appear in the fossil record fully formed, with eyes, with organs, with feet, living in the water and the land. Scientists can't get past this. Here's what Australian geologist Dr. Andrew Snelling had to say about the trilobite. He said, there is no possible evolutionary ancestors to the trilobites in the rock layers. In fact, trilobites appear in the geological record suddenly fully formed, and there's absolutely no clue as to how the amazing complexity of trilobites arose, and thus they quite clearly argue for design and fiat creation. You remember that word fiat last week, fiat lux, let there be light, fiat creation. God said, let there be, and there was. He said they, are quite, they quite clearly argue for design and fiat creation, just as we would predict from the biblical account in Genesis. This is not a minister saying this. This is a geologist with a PhD. Evolutionist Mark Ridley, a professor of zoology at Oxford University, admitted this. He said, in any case, no real evolutionist, whether gradualist or punctuationist, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to creation. Even one of the leading atheists in the field of zoology says, we can't use the fossils. The evidence simply is not there. And what's my conclusion this morning that I want you to know is that your life is not the result of some chemical reaction or cosmic accident. You did not come from the goo by way of the zoo. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says to you this morning, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Jeremiah 31 3, God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you 
with loving kindness. The God of the universe knows you, and He loves you. He is the Creator of all things, and if He has the power to create all things, He has the power to restore all things. You might feel broken, you might feel unworthy this morning, but God loves you with an unconditional, everlasting love, and there is nothing that will ever separate you from His love. He wants to restore you, to redeem you, to bring healing, help, and hope into your life. And it starts with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And here's the good news about Jesus. He's standing with arms wide open, and he has never turned anybody away. He came to him in faith. Put your faith in Jesus this morning, and he will change everything. Will you pray this morning? Let's close our eyes for a moment. Father, I thank you for your wonderful creation. Lord, all of creation declares your glory. Lord, I thank you that we can know and trust your word, God, the book of your scriptures, and also the book of nature, because you've revealed to yourself, yourself to us through all the things, all the worlds, all the universe that you've created. And Lord, we thank you for your great power. But Lord, I thank you, Lord, that the greatest force in the universe greater than anything else, greater than anything science can comprehend, is the love of God. I thank you, Lord, that you love us with an unconditional love. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much you love us, that you gave your best for us, even when we were at our absolute worst. And God, I pray for those who are listening right now who don't know you, who have not experienced your forgiveness and your mercy, your love and your hope. God, I pray, Lord, that they would put their faith in you today. God, that they would humble themselves before you. They would surrender their life to you, Lord, that you could change them and set them free. Give them a hope and a future. Give them a new beginning. I thank you, God, that today is a creation moment for them. That today is their day of new beginnings. Today is their day of freedom, of healing, of restoration. No more living under the guilt of the past. No more looking over their shoulder. But today is the day. This is the moment where they start lifting their eyes and looking, looking to where their help comes from. Looking to you. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. Lord, I thank you, God, that you love them enough that you set up this moment in time just for them. That they would put their trust in you. That you would save them and restore them. And I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful moment right now. As you continue to pray and keep your eyes closed, I want to lead you in a simple prayer to help you start your journey of faith in Jesus this morning. Will you pray this with me? Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my God. Be my closest friend. And with your help, with your strength, I'll live for you. I'll follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, will you stand to your feet this morning? If you prayed that prayer today or any day, will you just celebrate? Let's thank God for His salvation here this morning. Hallelujah.